Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So I've been reading this book, The Ancient City, and I think it's a really fascinating book. It kind of explains the traditions of ancient Rome and ancient Greece in a way that really helps us to understand how central religion was to pretty much everything that existed inside those cities, how it informed the law, how it informed politics, how it informed pretty much every uh, institution that they had in that time. And so I wanted to talk to somebody who is very familiar with that book. And so I have with me Dr. Chad Pecknell. He is the uh, an assistant professor over at Catholic University of America of Theology. Chad, thank you for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure to be with you as always, Aaron. Yeah, I think this is going to be really fascinating. You wrote a piece for the post-liberal order on uh, this book, or at least incorporating a good amount of this book, which I thought was very interesting. And so I definitely want to bring your perspective in here as we kind of look at what Collage had to say about the ancient city and the way that religion really informed everything that they did. But before we get started with that, guys, let's go ahead and hear from today's sponsor. Are you a college student who feels isolated as Cthulhu swims ever leftward? The Intercollegiate Studies Institute is here to help. ISI offers programs and opportunities for conservative students across the country. ISI understands that conservatives and right-of-center students feel isolated on campus and that you're often fighting for your own reputation, dignity, and future. Through ISI, you can learn about what Russell Kirk called permanent things, the philosophical and political teachings that shaped and made Western civilization great. ISI also offers many opportunities to jumpstart your career. For example, Nate Hawkman, who's been a guest on this show multiple times, got his start at National Review through ISI, and he's just one of many journalists that ISI has helped start their career. If you're a graduate student, ISI offers funding opportunities to sponsor the next generation of college professors. But most importantly, ISI offers college students a community of people that will help them grow. If you're a college student, ISI can help you start a student organization or a student newspaper or meet other like-minded students at various conferences and events. ISI is here to educate the next generation of great Americans. To learn more, check out ISI.org. That's ISI.org. You can click the link down in the description to learn more. All right, guys, so let's go ahead and jump right into it. So one of the things that I think is very helpful with this book is at the very beginning, Kalanj kind of encourages the reader to look at uh, the ancient city as kind of an alien place, right? He says a lot of people look at ancient Roman, ancient Greece, and they think of these as our ancestors. We're directly from their lineage. Uh, this is kind of how Western civilization evolved. And so we kind of push our own understanding of how these societies worked, our, our kind of modern understanding onto the rituals, the religious beliefs of these people. But he encourages us to really think of them as kind of an alien people because their ways are so different, different, so radically set apart from the way that many modern people think about religion and its role uh, to be to be kind of a very different, a drastically different role. Yeah, I, I think to make to make the the ancient world strange, especially to Third Republic French liberals, you know, like Robespierre and people who wanted to, you know, in a sense, have this ideal of going back to the ancients. We'll go back to, you know, Aristotle and Plato and we'll just be pure naturalists. And I think one of the one of the victories of this extraordinary study is not only that he got this was this was written in 1864, by the way, before there was such a thing as archaeology. Uh, and it's a, an extraordinary book because Fustel gets all of his information from studying classic texts. And so he kind of he kind of unearths the archaeology of Greek and Roman religion before there was such a thing as the archaeology of religion. And he gets it basically right. Um, but one of his aims is, in a sense, to demonstrate for his countrymen that, uh, in a sense, the ancient world that they're going, that they want to go back to is not a religion-free zone. I mean, that's what the that's what the philosophers are kind of after is some atheistic kind of natural order and going back to the ancients is their idea. And he writes the ancient city 
in part to demonstrate to them that that is quixotic. That's a fantasy. You're not going to go back to the ancients and find a religionless world. In fact, when you go back to the ancients, what you find is that, as he says, religion is the master science. Religion is has the kind of architectonic uh, power, uh, explanatory power for the whole thing. It explains everything from marriage and, you know, uh, family ties, kinship ties, how a family is held together, how, how families of families are held together, how philosophy is held together, uh, uh, how generations are held together, all by the bonds of religion. And so part of the project here is to demonstrate to 19th century philosophers that, that there's no doing without religion. Which I think is a particularly useful project for uh, many today who would like to abandon this crazy wokeness and get us all the way back to the classical liberalism of the 1990s, uh, thinking that we can kind of just uh, purge ourselves of this crazy new religion and get back to the good old days uh, where everything was objective and scientific. And I think it's really important for people to understand that that's just not how humans operate. It never has been how humans operate. And the ancient city is most certainly a study on how I think people do actually operate. Though, interestingly, he does say repeatedly that this is not a society that you can go back to in general anyway, that this is very much kind of of its time, uh, of its people, uh, you know, kind of of its particular spirit. And so uh, the, the caution about thinking that you're just going to return to a particular time is useful, even as it comes from somebody in the 1860s. Uh, but that said, let's kind of go ahead and get into some of the beginnings of his explanation yeah. of the religion here, because I think most people, they think, you know, the the Romans, the Greeks, it's all about Zeus. It's all about, uh, you know, Poseidon or something. And he no really way. goes he really goes back and starts at uh, a very ancient form of the religion in uh, kind of Greece and Rome, talking about something that was much more akin to ancestor worship and was rooted very much in the idea of a sacred hearth, a sacred fire that the family would tend to kind of honor, uh, you know, the, their ancients and visit the tomb that was in the land where they're that he even says things like property rights are developed specifically, not because of any idea of individual ownership or, you know, a kind of autonomous use of something, but very specifically because you had to own the field your family was buried in because their spirits literally lived there. Yeah, and, and yeah, I mean the and the 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 hearth. I'm I'm pointing at my hearth, and many people still today. I mean, some contemporary homes are built without fireplaces and hearths. But but the idea even of in a single family home where you have a kind of classical eggs and dentals kind of structure around your fireplace, that is religious for the ancients. That that there's a place in which the the vesta. The, the living flame of the family is the root of all ancient civilization. And that sacred flame is the thing which binds together the family and then binds together the city. And as you say, uh, it binds you not only temporally, but also binds you to, over across time to your ancestors and to the future. And, and that hearth, as it were, has to be rooted somewhere. It has to it has to be rooted in the place of your ancestors, and so you have to have land. You have to have property, and so the very idea that uh, you know the sale of property is a kind of religious event. Uh, it's 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 extremely complex in the ancient world to sell property, and we think, well, they didn't know about the free market, and you know. Uh, if if only they if only they had realtors, <laughs> but yeah. uh, but in fact uh, the reason the reason why they don't do that is because uh, even property is religious. Property has this religious significance. Um, inheritance the same way inheritance laws and primogeniture and the the connection between a father and the eldest son. Uh, how things are passed on from one generation to another is all bound by religion. And I mean, one of the interesting things is you might not see it in the ways that you expect to, right? You're, you're looking for a place in which people are gathering, you know, for, you know, singing hymns, you know, uh, passing, passing the tithe plate around or something like that. 
and I think like Emil Durkheim, uh, uh, Fustel shows, I think that religion is more suffused into everything. It's just kind of baked into everything. Yeah, it's it's the language by which kind of everyone communicates. It ties every different social interaction together. And I think most interestingly, uh, at least for me, because I spent a lot of time on kind of politics and political theory and the origins of these things, uh, it he talks a lot about how all of the law in the ancient city is tied to religion. So as you kind of alluded to there earlier, you you had it was considered it wasn't just considered uh, bad for you know someone to stay celibate to not have children. It was it was literally an interruption of the worship. It was an interruption of the ability of father and son to pass along the worship and to continue to care for the ancients and to continue uh, to provide the the things that the the ancestors would need once they had passed on. And so it was your moral duty to have that. Looks like we might have lost uh, Chad there for a second, guys. But I'll just continue with explaining some of these aspects, and hopefully we'll have him back here soon. Uh, but the uh, but the ancient world is a place where your continuing uh, bloodline is not just there for your you know the uh, carrying on property or something, but very specifically because they will be have a duty to care for you in the afterlife. And so inheritance is not something you can just hand off through something like a will because the son, if you, if you were to, to hand this off to some random person, this property off to some random person, that person would not be part of your worship. And therefore them possessing your land would rob your ancestors and the future of your line uh, of the ability to continue to participate in the worship. And so as uh, Dr. Pecknell was talking about, that's not just something that you lose as a you know, possession, but it's actually a lineage and a future uh, that you're denying to your family, as well as a denial of your ancestors of the worship that's due to them. I think you're that back there, Mr. Yeah, uh, and I Dr. think Fustel is very interested in. Yeah, uh, I think I think Fustel is interested in this question of of the family structure as the fundament of, of everything, that, that the family structure is inherently religious and that uh, it's the relationship between families which is also gonna be religious. And so one of the, one of the problems that Fustel talks about is the, the way in which religion is essentially private. You know, in, in the way sometimes a liberal might think re religion is a private thing. Um, in a very, very special way in the ancient world, uh, the domestic hearth, the the vesta of the of the of the domestic religion was just for you, just for you and your family. You didn't you didn't pray to your ancestral gods for your neighbor, right? You wouldn't you wouldn't don't pray for your city. You just it's very private. And Fustel talks about the development of the civic religion uh, as itself a problem. Is mm -hmm. you if everything's religious and and you have this development of a connection between families. And here he has an has in mind the primitive movement was the connection between aristocratic families. That the, the what bound the aristocratic families together was also a new civic hearth, you could call it, a civic altar. And that that civic altar was to a God that would protect that group of families as a as a tribe and then as a city. Um, and so everything for Fustel kind of expands off of that. So you move from the domestic religion, which is private, to a civic religion, which is totally public. But its publicness is uh, once again, jealous. So you would pray to the God of that city for people in that city. You would never pray to that God for people in another city. And so you have this kind of way in which the religion starts to build up. And uh, this is how he, he describes the movement of both Greek and Roman civilization as a movement of religious order that is kind of organically uh, grows up as the binding instrument, as the, the relegare, the thing that that knits things together, uh, each according to their capacity. 
Yeah, and I found that particularly interesting because I think it also plays uh, into something that Bertrand Juvenal talks about with his metaphysics of power and how for the state to expand, it must collapse mm -hmm. all competing spheres of social authority. But I don't, I don't want to get too far into that yet because I, I think there's some other things I want to hit before we get there. But I, I think that the interesting thing about this book is it, it lays out the development of these societies so well that I think it brings together a number of different th threads of kind of political theory and, and becomes a showcase for, for a number of kind of how these mechanisms work. Uh, but I do want to go ahead and touch before we get to some of that stuff about the power of the of kind of how laws have to follow the religious order. The laws uh, for uh, Fustel are basically things that come into being because they are formalizations of what already is religious doctrine, which already is kind of the tradition and that the laws couldn't be anything else. He specifically says the idea that the, uh, that the Senate or that the, the legislative body would legislate something that was against the religion or an opposition or a restriction on the religion was crazy because the, the families had so much authority and the worship of the families had so much authority that the government did not have the ability to kind of basically enshrine anything else. And so things like the ownership of the children, kind of a radical ownership of children where you could sell your, your, your son or daughter, um, you could choose to kill them. Uh, all of these things are uh, things that the, the society could not change. The, the, the government could not change because the authority of the families themselves was ultimate. And so that meant that the laws as they came into being were purely kind of reflections of this religious order in many ways. Yeah, I mean, specifically, not just the power of the families. Oh, I lost him again. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, exciting uh, issues with connections. I guess I'll just continue to talk about this again until we get him back. Oh, he's back already. Sorry. All right. No problem. Uh, yeah. No, but the the power, the power of the fathers, the power of the fathers, absolute, and uh, the the power of the fathers fundamentally a religious power, and uh, the reason why the Senate won't intervene is because it's precisely the the fathers who constitute the regime, and so there's a kind of implicit classical sense of subsidiarity here that that um, there's something inviolable about the power of the father to rule. Um, even Fustel talks about how the father sits in the judgment seat in the court of his own home and his judgments are supreme. So, you know, a, a father is like a Supreme Court justice in his own home and he can decide his own disputes. Now, uh, so the state, the, the government can't uh, decide any, I mean, we have civil disputes, disputes between families in our courts. There would be none of that for them. Um, now, a father could be judged, right, uh, by the Senate, uh, but his children couldn't be, his wife couldn't be. Um, and I think that gives you the sense of of the... Uh, the way in which the civilization is structured is, you know, Catholics have one way of saying that the family is the fundamental unit. The ancients have another way of saying that it's, it is both the fundamental unit and it's, it has, a, it's already political, if I can put it that way. Some conservatives like this idea of the pre-political, that the family is pre-political to the civic order. That is not an ancient view at all. Uh, the ancients absolutely view the family as political. It's political all the way through. It's religious all the way through. Um, and uh, the Senate respects that, uh, respects that the, the family is the basic political, social, religious unit of, uh, and uh, doesn't, doesn't, in a sense, have rights over uh, the father. Yeah, and it's very interesting that even as many of these families kind of bind together in what he calls the gins here, kind of the uh, the the old families, uh, the patrician families, inside of them they still have this order where there there are judges and priests and kind of sacred rites that only belong to that family, only belong to that gin. And so there's 
basically uh even once we start seeing more of the formation of the state there's still all these subdivides inside these families that have more weight that have more authority uh than the than whatever the top government level of government would have and so like you said that that level of subsidiarity where kind of each level has an authority that can't be breached by uh kind of the formal state is a constant uh theme throughout here um and uh he really also breaks in to the fact that a lot of what he's talked about is from kind of the nobility uh that you had you know your your patrician families and then they had the clients that got to share the religion of those families and then you had the uh the plebs who had kind of no religion at all or did not have a connection to this religion and so in some ways slaves who were brought into the worship of these households were considered kind of more citizens or part of the ancient city than the plebs were because they were initiated into the worship in a way that these outside uh, plebs without a religion were not. Oh, got a re uh, relocation and lost him again. Okay. Well, he'll probably be back right away, but uh, yeah, guys. So that was a big part of what he talks about that, Oh, and we're back again. Okay, hopefully that's, that's a better right. connection. I hope this is better over here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but yeah, no, I was just I was just talking about this uh, patrician client distinction versus the plebs and how the lack the, the big yeah. uh, delineation was the lack of religion on the part of the plebs. They were not considered part of kind of the original ancient city mainly because they did not have this connection to the ancient religions they didn't have the worship that the other families had i think that i, I think that's some, one of the striking things here is is the class distinctions that come out very strongly in his history that that the political religious nature of families is primarily a aristocratic thing the plebs don't have this strong connection uh they they might indeed have religious practices uh uh, but uh, they're they're not constitutive. They don't give them power. They 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 might you know they 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 might engage in in various religious exercises. But but they're alienated from the central rights the the central rights of the civic religion. Um, and I think he he rightly you know draws out the way in which the the relationship between the the potters and the plebs plays out in the various revolutions both the greek revolutions and the and especially the roman revolutions uh, the, he does a very very good job of of kind of tracing religion through the different revolutions from from the monarchical period to the republican period to the imperial period and in, in the roman history and and helps you to see, uh, you know, in a sense, how the civil wars between that develop between, uh, you know, the the sort of few and the many, uh, the the war that develops between the few and the many is partly a religious war, uh, partly a, a war between those who ha have access to uh, to the, you know, the hearth, the vesta, and, and those who don't. Yeah, and I think that's particularly interesting because, you know, Joseph de Maestra talks about how law uh, should, that constitutions are really only a reflection of, again, the traditions, the folkways, uh, the, the religious beliefs of the people, that you can't really, uh, you know, just create these things out of thin air. And the more you try to write them down, the more they lose their power, because the real binding power was that shared tradition, that shared origin, that shared religion. And so what's very interesting is kind of as the plebs want to participate more in society, they start demanding law because the law of the city did not apply to them. The law was only for the religious and those who shared the worship. And so as they demand kind of their own law, they almost kind of demand a secular secularization in some ways of the law. It still wouldn't be secular in the way we're talking about, or we would think of today. But, but something that is not of the original worship and due to the formalization of that law that otherwise would have been kind of perpetuated through the jinns, perpetuated through the families, perpetuated through the tradition and religion, and instead placing it kind of outside that tradition, you kind of start to see the first crack in kind of the, the, the control or, or the complete 
uh, inclusion only based on the worship there. That's right. You you get a kind of pulling away, uh, and and Fustel has a very interesting explanation for this. He says explicitly that this happens because the religion has lost power. Uh, when when religion lost, loses power, when it when it loses its kind of explanatory hold on the gens, on the kind of aristocratic structures, um, it generated alongside of it um, uh, laws, a, a law and a politics which were not so tightly bound, not so suffused. And so you get, he kind of describes a kind of unraveling which begins to occur. But the reason why you get the unraveling and you get this just prior to the advent of Christianity, you get this unraveling of religion and politics um, at just the point at which religion is losing its power. Um, and as religion loses its power, then uh, the plebs actually make uh, a play uh, for power um, and succeed in, in large part. Well, and I think it's really interesting because he talks about the interplay throughout these different revolutions. You talked about, you know, how he kind of details these different revolutions. And he describes each one, I think, as an interplay between both the religion losing hold and uh, the desires of those who were outside the religion to be integrated into the city. So yeah. he specifically says in the book, in order for the state to grow in power, the, the power of the families had to be lessened, right? Had to be dissolved. And so, yeah, and so I think there's an interplay here where the, the religion is weakening, but also it is in the material interests and the political interests of many to see that authority weakened. And again, this is kind of, uh, th this is Bertrand de Juvenal's high and low versus middle, where right. the, where the, you know, the king or the, those that wish to uh, kind of uh, remove the aristocracy, the established middle from their positions of power can offer new enfranchisement or new attachment to the lower classes to garner power for themselves. And this is specifically done through religion because religion, like you said, was so essential to this. So instead of just offering people, you know, the, the, the franchise or something, which did, did eventually happen, but very specifically religion is offered to the plebs. And so the, in order for the plebs to have a role in the society, they have to acquire their own religion and it has become part of the civic religion for them to kind of then enter into the ancient city. So for instance, they have these, um, you know, uh, these citywide sacrifices where they share the meals that have been burnt to the city gods. And this is right. what then allows kind of the larger integration of uh, those who were not politically enfranchised into the whole. Right. And you notice that, that at that, at that point, religion becomes public. You've moved from having religion, which is private in the domestic sphere, to having a kind of, you know, friendly dynamic between the domestic hearth and the civic hearth, to then the civic hearth dominating at the expense of the family institutions and the expense even of family religion. Uh, so I think that that this expansion of power um, is is kind of a zero sum game with the family institutions and the family religion. Uh, and the, the tensions of the civil wars are, are marked by this. I also think it's you know notable that the the civic religions as they progress get more and more vicious. The, the civic religion gets more and more um, perverse. Um, so the the demos's religion is not necessarily elevated for being more greatly shared. More yeah. And yeah, in, in many ways, it, it's a, a bastardization. So, for instance, uh, he talks about how the uh, the consulship or the the, the the kingship had to be stripped of its religious connotations once the plebs started entering into the equation because the plebs wanted to be able to have a savor this, have a vote, have a voice. But if they were having a voice, that would have ruined the worship. And so they had to separate what had once been kind of a, the, the chief and the priest were the same yeah. and the, they were integrated and they had to be separated so that the wider populace could participate and the religion could be protected. But once the religion had been separated out of these leadership positions, 
people forgot that it should have been integrated in the first place. And so the, the, the religion, the, the weakness of the religion allowed for the separation, but the separation then created further weakening of the religion because once people no longer understood these offices as religious in nature uh, and their authority as religious in nature, the religion then itself also starts to recede. Yeah, no, there's a kind of feedback, of, you know, feedback loop of the, the loss of, of religious strength and political expansion of power yeah so uh i also wanted to touch on the fact that uh he again repeatedly talks about how these different ways of religiosity uh, each one of these revolutions that brought the uh you know that brought the plebs in that brought more outside elements in that reduced the the authority of the family also uh you know fundamentally changed the way that the religion was practiced and it's funny because a lot of people today, it's very popular, especially for a certain uh, segment of kind of the online right to say, well, Christianity un- uh, in- undid all this stuff, right? Christianity is for the downfall of, of yeah. the Roman Empire. It's what brought about all this bad stuff. It's the problem now. This is the nature of Christianity. But I think uh, he shows in this case study is actually this is just the nature of power and how it interacts with religion. And that for power to grow and centralize, it needs to subsume these different parts of religion. And so Christianity does show up at the end of this weakened religion, like you were saying, but it is not the cause of the weakening uh, the weakening of this religion. The religion had already been weakened through these many different revolutions that came in many ways due to the interests of the state. I think I think he he demonstrates the the natural tendency of of power and religion to go together but also the natural tendency of power to want to dominate religion and to control religion. And, um, and, and finally, for, for the priests to be subject to the pontiff or to the king uh, is the, the essential movement of ancient civilization in the narrative that he tells. It's, it's the, you know, the, the triumph, finally, the, the ruling of the, of the, temporal over the spiritual if we want to put it in, in contemporary terms the the way in which uh, uh politics um uh, triumphs over the spiritual um it, it's interesting because i have i did i don't talk about this in my piece at post liberal order but i do i do find it interesting that uh he has about a you know 10 page conclusion from which i dissent uh, I really, I really like uh, Fustel's study. It's just, it's just so helpful for all the reasons that you say, and and I think it's also illuminating for our own times and thinking about the relationship between, you know, our aristocracy and and what what our aristocracy is fighting for, and what our, you know, what our few are fighting for, and what our many are fighting for uh, ha- have some similar dynamics. But one of the things that Fustel concludes um and i i think it doesn't follow from his his argument throughout uh, is that christianity changed everything by separating religion and politics um that's his kind of final conclusion um without any evidence uh, he doesn't you know it, it's it's as if the it's as if charlemagne never existed for fustel somehow at the end and I, I think there's reasons for that. I think I think it, it goes back to who he regards as his audience in the Third Republic in the 19th century. Um, and he, he has a really complicated uh, agenda. One is to just totally destroy the idea that you could have some religiously neutral regime. You could have some political order without religion, but also to... Uh, also to, in a sense, caution uh, his French philosoph friends uh, about the idea of power overtaking religion, power commanding religion, uh, power dictating religion. And so he has this almost, I think, liberal Catholic idea of protecting protecting the Catholic Church um, from the power of liberal politics by, by insisting on another kind of separation. Which doesn't really map on to, you know, the other the two thousand years he misses, or the you know nineteen hundred years he misses. Uh, 
in, in terms of Christian history, because he just doesn't touch Christian history. But I think he has, he has his eye on that question of, you know, how should liberals regard the Catholic Church? Well, they should regard it as set apart, as separate, separate from, from the liberal order and respected, and that uh, you, should, you should be forewarned because religion is is powerful and uh, you should you should let it be its own especially let christianity be its own separate transcendent thing above your laws and above your attempt to command and control uh christianity yeah i have to say this is a, something that continues to baffle me uh when people talk about uh history and christianity that there's just this always been the separation between Christianity and the law or governance, uh, particularly when they pretend that like Christianity never, you know, allowed for like for the protection of the state, uh, you know, uh, through, through force and these kind of things. Like no one ever heard of Charles Martel. Nobody knows about Charlemagne. Like none exactly. of this stuff ever happened. It, it exactly. is, it is fast. Yeah. It, it is fascinating that this is something I hear from both left and, and very far right, that, that the Christianity is this soft squishy thing that never got involved in politics and, was never able to protect itself or others. And I, I just don't know what history they're looking at. Cause it's just in no way uh, reflected in, in the actual record. Uh, yeah. But I do want to talk about what you uh, mentioned there, uh, which I think uh, for the next half of our uh, uh, kind of broadcast would be what lessons we can draw from this. What should yeah. modern people see from this now that we have a better understanding of kind of the relationship and, uh, and the weaving of religion into all of these things. What are what are some lessons right off the top of your head that maybe people should understand in the modern day when we're looking at our politics and the way it might relate to religion? Well, I mean, I think it, you know, the the one of the the really big takeaways for me was is was to understand uh, that in our contemporary terms, we we have the few, uh, we have our own kind of gens uh, who. Uh, are kind of trying to institute a very kind of pseudo-religious account of their power, call it wokeness or whatever. Um, and this kind of pseudo-religious sentiment um, has rights that goes with it. It has sacraments that goes with it, the sacrament of abortion, um, the, the, the pride flag, the progress flag, these are all highly religious kinds of commitments uh, that are being promoted by the few, the corporate few, C-suite boards, aristocratic uh, power is engaging in uh, essentially the, the use of religious power uh, to uh, establish um, their control over civilization. And we see you know, the party of the many kind of pushing back against that. You know, the Bud Light's a kind of, you know, great example of this where you, where you have, you know, okay, they, they, they realized it didn't go well and they said sorry about, you know, Dylan Mulvaney. Um, but, but ultimately, they, they, if they would have gotten away with that, they would have been perfectly happy with that campaign because it was, it was a classic example of the few using religion, a kind of religious a sentiment uh, to try to create a new way of binding people together. And Bud Light, that's a, that's some, that's a pleb product, right? That's not a product for aristocrats, uh, our own progressive aristocrats. That's a, that's a NASCAR beer. So if, if the few could go in and capture the religio, the religion of the plebs and turn it to their own hearth, as it were, uh, they would have gained enormous power, um, enormous power. Same Miller lights, very interesting, though different on, on the, on the same question is you see, you see a kind of a gens of the progressive aristocrat, uh, working out its religious power, uh, to gain political control of the plebs. And then you also see the plebs fighting back. So I think there's a really interesting transition happening here. And I yeah. think it's what's giving a lot of classical liberals whiplash. Yeah. So Alistair McIntyre talks in After Virtue about how managerialism is kind of the, the political uh, theology of our 
day and that like the extraction of expertise mm-hmm. and the ability to plan and uh, create this miracle of progress is uh, kind of what uh, gave them their uh, their political formula. And it feels like wokeness is here because that's failing because mm-hmm. we can't uh, they can no longer produce that efficiency. They can no longer justify the idea of objectivity and and kind of material progress from what's happening. And so instead, we need a new kind of faith to enter in. And uh, the reason that a lot of classical liberals are lost is they never thought of managerialism as a faith. They never understood it as the kind of the the religious substrate that that kind of bound. Uh, their world together and so now they see this new maybe perhaps more clearly religious to them sentiment being uh, created by the same cast that was supposed to be completely bought into kind of the managerialism managerial liberalism and they are lost uh, they, they are confused in that moment do, do you think that that tension will find a way to ease itself or is that going to be a showdown uh, that we're that we're going to see here I mean, it's interesting because uh, the first thing that popped in my head was was precisely Fustel's phrase is is they lost power because their religion lost power. Yeah. Um, and I think this is true for classical liberals as well. I think they're losing power because something about how they held the world together and there was something religious about how they held the world together that that kind of separation that they imagined a kind of neat sort of here's politics over here, here's religion over here. I think that neat separation um, and which, um, you know, is, is kind of baked into liberalism has, has lost its power. No, nobody believes it anymore. I mean, the whole kind of everyone, everyone is now used to hearing, you know, neutrality is a myth, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's very hard to find people who will push back hard on, I think, one of the central theses of liberalism, which is that you can have this neutral public space uh, that's not religious, that's indifferent to religion. Nobody thinks that anymore. And in a, in a sense, that's the loss of its religious power. And I think that's why classical liberals, you know, are are back-footed on all of this, because as, as you say, in a sense, they, they had assumptions that have crumbled. Yeah, I, I so here's the thing. I hear what you're saying, and I think you're right that I think a lot of people who talk about this a lot may not say that believe that anymore. But I think most people still do believe that. Okay. Like I, I, yeah. I think, I think, and that's why I think so many of the classical liberal kind of opponents of wokeness play to wider audiences because right. most people are still bought into this idea, and it's and it's falling apart. There are pieces of it falling apart. Uh, ironically, the postmodern moment might be the best thing to kind of shake up the idea you know religious people very afraid of postmodernism, but it it might be the thing that that shakes a lot of people out of this idea that you can avoid this this uh religious scenario that there is a secular society but i think we're in an interesting transition where that is becoming more apparent but is still not i think understood by the vast majority of people um and so there's still this idea that we'll be able to create this liberal consensus uh, once again, we'll, we'll be able to reconstitute it once everybody, you know, stops being crazy and gets over the wokeness and, you know, whatnot, uh, yeah. that we'll, we'll be we'll be able to kind of reform it again. Um, and I wonder, do you so uh, obviously Before we just get enough critical race theory, anti-critical race theory legislation through, then people will come back to their senses and the managers in the C-suite will stop producing Dylan Mulvaney or whatever. Beer. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing is like, look, don't get me wrong. I'm for the use of state power to stop this. Stuff. Agreed. Yeah. But but the you know, again, as we as as Demestra asserted, as as uh, uh, Fustel says, you know, once you have to write this stuff down, it loses its power. Like the exactly. reason yeah. this stuff has power is that it was already stood. It was already understood and practiced and believed in by the people. And so you can't just legislate out this stuff you you have to understand the, the kind of the level at which it's at so i guess that brings us to, to kind of the next point if we as people who are reading this book and understanding the centrality of religion yeah. to you know kind of these processes of society of the city of law all this stuff if we know that we cannot 
have a neutral society. Many people who then hear me make this argument or, or you make this argument, other people say this argument, immediately come back with, oh, well, then it's just got to be, you know, uh, it's got to be you're the only one who's right. You're, you're the only one who's right. How do you, in, in a society steeped in, in, in liberalism and yeah. that kind of using that still, even though they now find themselves ruled by wokeness, how do you work against the ruling ideology without, a, well, by, you know, kind of letting people know, like, yeah, no, something has to replace this. It's not just going to be neutral once this is gone. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, in a way, um, I mean, if I if I were to have written the last ten pages uh, on Christianity for Fustel, one one of the things I would have said is that uh, that Christianity didn't didn't really change the notion that religion uh, and politics go together didn't really change that. What it changed was the superiority of the, the true religion over a bad religion to hold a society together. And so I think the, the, the reason why Christianity kind of delivers us a, a civilization which draws up the Greek and the Roman, right? It doesn't, it, it, that Christianity doesn't, on some level, it's a massive break from, from the ancient world. But on another level, it just delivers all this back to us uh, under, the, under true religio, true religion. And I think, I think the proper conclusion to, to Fustel's book, if you aren't a liberal Catholic, is that the, the, the natural conclusion is Christianity uh, raises the whole question of, of divine revelation. Has God spoken? Do we do we have true religion? And if we do have true religion, it should pr produce a better kind of society. It should produce a more just society. Um, and uh, I think that's the kind of level of conversation that we need to have. What kind of society do we want to pass on to our children? What would what would it look like? What uh, and what what religion would be good at producing that? <laughs> um, and um, and then then you have to face the question of, well, only a true religion uh, could could produce good results. Um, and and I think that's that's kind of that's kind of the best answer I think you can give to the to the person who says, well, we can't know the true and the good. Um, uh, the the that's immediately falsifiable because you don't like the bad religion and what it's producing. Right? The, the reason why you don't like the fruits of, of the woke, you know, empire is because it's religion's false, you know, and, and so that you're, you're going to have an unhappy society and we have a massively unhappy society. And why do we have a massively unhappy? Why do we have these deaths of despair? We have these deaths of despair because we're operating on a totally false ersatz religion. And so that's, I think that's the only way in which you can, you can address the person who says, which religion, um, at the very least you have to have the conversation. Well, not this one, right? Cause this one's making you very unhappy. <laughs> sure. And, 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 you know, for so many of these people, they, one of the, I think the bad lessons that a lot of these, uh, kind of reformed, liberals or post liberals or you know kind of atheists who saw the problem with kind of wokeness and what was going on is they just kind of took the lesson that well if wokeness is a religion then it's just bad because it's a religion and all religions are bad yeah and so we should just kind of uh, eliminate all of them and this is something that i've you know argued against many times i'm sure many people who are listening to this now are very familiar with yeah. this argument but it's it's just that there is you can sit around and talk about like how you need to ally with people and you need to form coalitions. And I'm with you on this, but like at some point, if these people do not have an answer to this problem, then they kind of have to listen to the people who do. Right. Like you've got to find something to bind people together. And if you don't have anything and you understand the thing that's binding kind of the current regime together is bad, then maybe you should listen to the people who have something that does actually do this. I think that's right. And, and the, the flip side to everyone who always raises a pluralist, you know, pluralism, but what about pluralism? I mean, the flip side to pluralism is, well, what about the kind of unity that would enable us to be truly plural? Like you need, like the flip side of plural is unity. And what, 
gives us our unity in which we could be actual people. Nobody, I mean, pluralism today just means being progressive or something, I think. Um, pluralism doesn't doesn't mean that everybody's different. It kind of means everybody has to think the same way um, is, what, is what pluralism seems to me to mean. Um, as soon as you're starting to talk about diversity, inclusion, and equity, I, I think I know exactly what you think. Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what you think. And you think exactly the same as somebody else who says diversity, inclusion, and equity. Um, that if that's what pluralism means, I know it doesn't really mean pluralism. It just means uniformity of thought. Um, and so you need you need to, I think, answer every kind of cry for pluralism with a cry for, yeah, but what gives us unity? What what's the what's the generative unitive thing that makes us a people? Uh, and uh, I think the classic ancient answer is religion. Uh, it's bad religion for the ancients from a Christian uh, point of view, but uh, uh, the I think Christianity's great innovation, great radical revolution is uh, not in saying that religion is in our unity, but that uh, we can only be united by uh, God himself coming down into the person of Jesus Christ, uh, that that's true religion. And that's the... That's the source of unity and also the source of any true pluralism. Yeah, it's interesting. In the book, he talks about how basically a son is only a son because they are initiated into the worship. And even if you know, you have a biological son, if he's not you know, uh, of the mother who entered the family through religious rites, or if the son uh, leaves for another family and renounces the name of the family and its worship, uh, then it doesn't matter. He doesn't have any rights anymore. And an adopted son who is entered through these kind of religious rights gains legitimacy in a way that the biological son doesn't have. And so, uh, if, they, if they've kind of uh, left the, the worship. And I think it's really difficult to find another way to bind kind yeah. of a large community together because, you know, the the civic nationalism of so many of these classic liberals is kind of obviously uh you know useless in the long run because it's like okay well what binds the nation together oh well they all say share the same idea okay well what happens if someone in america decides they don't share the idea anymore do they lose their citizenship well no okay well then what does your civic nationalism mean like <laughs> of what value is it like you need something that is deeper and you know eternal more connected to identity and who you are if you're going to actually have any kind of useful bond uh binding of a nation you know just oh we all happen to agree on something for 10 seconds and then everybody parts ways on it is no way to actually have any kind of functional society exactly and it's not like it's not like he fustel completely recognizes that the family is a natural thing you know mm -hmm. a woman coming together and creating new life but it's what binds you know the family together as as a unity as a is something which is generative. That's what where the the gens comes comes from, and for that he says you need religion. And if you don't have religion to bind together, you're going to reduce to blood. And blood is just not a sufficient supplier of unity. And I I think when when I hear that I think well this is why we're obsessed with race, being white or black or you know. Um, that, that all of these kind of nationalisms that work on blood, on a unity of blood, um, are, are not going to work. They're not going to work. They're just not going to hang together. Um, and Fustel's kind of gives you 2,000 years of classical history to show you that the, the, the blood unity just doesn't work. You need religio to bind a family together, to bind a city together, um, to... Uh, bind philosophers together, everything to, to bind um, uh, just about everything, business even. Well, and I think it's interesting that, you know, maybe even those who are not Christian guys like Spangler or Avola sure. thought that uh, reducing race to simply biological or blood ties was a mistake, that it was a, a tragedy of understanding. They understood race as a 
as kind of a cultural continuation, a binding metaphysical spirit, not simply a, a direct descent of genetic lineage. Right. Um, even, even they recognize that it, it has to be religious, if whatever it is. Right. And so and so I think that idea is uh, I, I think the modern conception uh, is one that uh, ignores many people, even those who wouldn't have been Christian uh, and their understanding of kind of what actually tied a civilization together and what made a race in their constitution, their their definition of that, uh, which I think nation, what makes a race is always is always going to be something uh, that is trans temporal. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we hit most of what I wanted to talk about there. Uh, we have a few questions from uh, the audience here that we might hit real quick. Before we do, is there anything that we didn't get to touch on that you wanted to cover? Well, I think I, I mean, the, the only thing uh, that, uh, you know, is, is interesting is a phrase I use in, in the, the piece, um, at postable order is uh, pseudo integralism. So we hear a lot about integralism, and people have very strong views about integralism, and they think it's one thing. Um, and I, I call wokeism a pseudo integralism because it's the, the question of of integralism is, in a sense, the same question of of what will integrate, uh, what will unite, what will make a society whole. And the question of integralism is really just that question is what's the religio that's going to give integrity to a society as a as a common thing as a thing that everybody can share in and and what what i think makes wokeness a, a pseudo integralism is it is actually trying to unite us all in a common view you know let's all share the a view of abortion let's all share a view of of, of gays let's all share the same view of you know trans drag queen story hour let's all get on the on the progress train um, because they have a vision of an integrated society in which everyone, you know, is sharing in the common faith. Um, and it's precisely what the many are resisting. And I think they're, they're resisting for both political and religious reasons. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's also, I think, important for people to remember that, you know, they, you need to dissolve, if you're going to manage a large amount of people, if you're going to create this kind of globalism that they'd like to have rule everybody, you need to dissolve moral and cultural particularism. You have to collapse, again, those competing spheres of uh, social authority and moral authority. And so it's really important to dissolve, uh, you know, all these different ideas and make sure they're unified under kind of this one cosmopolitan and hedonistic understanding of kind of human well-being and, 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 and good. And so it's really important to understand that the, the, the wokeness is in many ways has a political utility to these people, but they also believe it very deeply. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's not just one or the other. It's, it's both. Uh, it is a binding religion and also something that has political, a high degree of political utility. Yeah. And I, and I think part of the reason why it has, has power too is, is that in some ways it's, it, it's a parody of Christianity. It's, it's still tied in. I mean, whatever you want to call it, cathedral or the, the, the way in which, you know, Puritanism expresses itself through Boston and through elites uh, and through the, the few uh, communicating uh, in a kind of cell division of ideas that descend from, descend from a kind of moral purity and a puritanicalism. I mean, that's, we see that very, very strongly and the, the, the the way in which wokeness is parasitic on Christianity is also what explains a lot of its religious power. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it is definitely a Christian heresy and it would have to be because Christianity is what had bound the West together before it. And since it has, I don't think any particularly generative qualities of its own, all it can really do is bind together the kind of the fumes, the remaining uh, Christian ethos. But once it's kind of deracinated, yeah. uh christianity then it just is it's eventually going to die and that's that's the upside is and i think that's what yeah. we're seeing for a lot of people is uh the the power of that religion is is uh very very uh shallow because it it calls on forces it doesn't really control and separates them from things that are actually meaningful uh and so it can only really push uh 
push those things so far, especially because it's denying truth about not just the metaphysical, but the directly biological at this point. So, yeah. And I, I think we've seen, we've seen it in history before with Arianism. I mean, Athanasius woke up one day and said the whole world's whole world has become, you know, Arian. Um, and Arianism wasn't defeated by, you know, holding hands and singing Kumbaya. Right. Um, and, and same with Albigensianism, you know, it just, it, it ran through Europe uh, like wildfire. And um, I think we, we have to, we have to come to terms with how important it is to fight heresy. Um, this is something that the, that the liberal conscience does not like this idea that you would fight heresy, uh, but there really is religious heresy. Um, and it's important to know what religious truth is in order to know how to defeat it. I mean, they do, they do love, uh, fighting heresy, you know, just the, 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 their current version of it is, you know, they're, no, they're all I mean. on board it's with like, you, you need to know what they, what, what they, 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 they believe that they have true religion, but, uh, if you press them, they can't really support it. Right. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and jump over to, uh, I think a question or two we have real quick before we do, is there anything you want people to check out the post-liberal order, anything else that you want people to uh, to read or follow you or anything? Yeah, of course. Uh, come come find us. Uh, my friend Patrick Denny and Gladden Pappen and I have have uh, this uh, post-liberal order that we're having a lot of fun with. And uh, yeah, and if you know anybody who would like to submit to us, uh, shoot us an email. Uh, I'm just pecknell.cua.edu and you can find post-liberal order at Substack. So. All right, let's go ahead and jump over Super Chat real quick. Uh, Colin for $5. It makes some very large assumptions around origins and customs that ring true to me. Are there modern refutations or criticisms of this work? Uh, so yeah, I know that a lot of this, like you said, a lot of this existed before archaeology. Uh, and he's it's uh, it's thoroughly footnoted, but it is all based on a lot of Livy and such. And uh, I understand that he is filling in a lot of the logical holes here kind of with his own understanding. I think he does a pretty good job with that, but it, it is of course, you know, not a document of complete exact historical accuracy, I guess. I'm sure there are people who have uh, some, uh, some problems with kind of the conclusions he draws. I think that's right. I think, you know, there, there's, he, he, he gets it largely right. I think his, I think the, I think the consensus in the amongst classicists and now you probably get, classicist uh, calling in but uh, my my sense is that well one is that religion and antiquity is not the biggest field in classics and it doesn't get as much treatment as it should um uh you know there there have been studies uh mary beard comes to mind uh, uh i.b collins i think uh but the, the the classical studies i think generally remark on how right he gets things considering that he has no archaeological evidence before him all he has are the old texts and he's kind of piecing things together from firsthand accounts of their world um and uh, he gets it right like 80 percent of the time and that's remarkable in itself you know does he get things wrong from time to time yes um but in the on the main it, i think it remains the best book on ancient religion um, uh, from the primary text. Yeah, and guys, just as a, a thought on kind of how you view many of these texts when you're when you're trying to understand a lot of this stuff, there's a, a very modern impulse to say, well, if there's something wrong here, then it's all useless, right? If there's if right. there's yeah, if, if there's a bad interpretation somewhere, if he, the footnoting was wrong, if we discover something else, you know, it was written in 1860. So, right. you know, we might've figured something else out between here and 1860. People will say, oh, well, you know, that that's wrong. So just the whole argument falls apart. None of it's right. worthwhile. And I think it's I really important. I disagree with those last 10 pages. But right. I, think, I think it's the most important book on Roman religion. Sure. I, I've, I, there are many philosophers, many theorists that I think get certain things wrong that, that make certain shortcomings but it are still extremely valuable. And I just really encourage people not to throw the baby out with the bathwater with so much of this stuff that everyone's looking for. Oh, well, this, this one guy had a crackpot idea or he got one, one part of an analysis wrong. 
And so therefore it's just not useful. No, find the useful parts, find the things that are mostly right, find the things that hang together, connect them to other things that are useful rather than just trying to find one particular uh, flaw and then suddenly discarding something that otherwise has a lot of explanatory power or is very useful in, in many ways. Uh, right. Just because, again, you find you find one thing that it turned out not to be correct. There's a new translation, which I haven't looked at, uh, by Jody Bottom's daughter. Um, I can't remember her first name at the moment, but uh, but if you if you look up, there's a there's a new translation, uh, which uh, I'm interested in looking at for myself. But uh, the thing I was going to say about it is that uh, it's just beautifully written. And you learn a lot about the ancients. Um, you know, whether or not you agree with everything, you just get a treasure trove of texts, you know, both Greek and Latin. Yeah, I've got this edition, which I actually wouldn't recommend. It's poorly formatted. <laughs> okay, um, yeah, yeah. But uh, but I, I've heard Imperium Press has a good one. I'm sure there's other others that are out there. Um, but yeah, it, it is it is well written. It is, I think, very cogently put together. Again, it's it's heavily footnoted. So if you want to uh, go back and look through primary sources, you can do so. Uh, so I do think it, it, even again, if, if everything isn't perfect, if you don't agree with every part of it, it's still well worth your time. I think it does um, it does open up your mind to a way of being that is very hard, hard for modern people to kind of wrap their uh, mind around. And it might even have you thinking more about, okay, what is the religion of my city? Uh, what is, you know, what, 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 what rituals are we performing together? What things are we centering and what are we using to kind of bind our culture together? And are those things actually revealing the good and the beautiful and the true? Are they really connecting us to things of value? Is it really going to last in the long run? So I think that's, that's the really crucial thing is he makes you attentive to what's going to be durable. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. But once again, I want to thank uh, Chad Pecknold for coming on. I want to thank all of you guys for joining us. Had some good uh, chat going on there. Really appreciate it as always. Of course, if this is your first time coming by, make sure that you subscribe to the channel. And if you want to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the Laura McIntyre Show on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you do that, please go ahead and leave a rating or a review. Uh, that'll really help out with everything. Uh, guys, I also was on TimCast last week. That's why all of my normal streams that were usually live weren't live because I was traveling during that. Uh, but we will be live again tomorrow. I'm actually going to be finishing up my series with Michael Millerman on the fourth political theory and Alexander Dugan. So if you want to go ahead and check that out, you can turn in to tune in tomorrow at 2.30. Thanks for coming by, guys. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.